and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. In this episode of IM3 Investigates, I'm joined by Suzanne Baker, Associate Director, Climate, Environment and Sustainability at Tech UK, the Trade Association for Companies in the Digital Economy, and Chris Oldroyd, founder and CEO of Inprotech Limited, an engineering company specialising in the design and supply of plant for the recovery of non-ferrous metals, and a fellow of IM3. Alongside her work at Tech UK, Suzanne also chairs the JTA, a group of trade associations that represent producers of electrical and electronic products, and chairs the board of a £17.5 million fund tasked to invest in activities that support the delivery of the UK's waste electrical and electronic equipment regulations. Chris is a board member of the IOM3 Sustainable Development Group, which provides expertise and support across IOM3 for the whole life cycle thinking in the environment. And Chris's specific interest is with the true circular economy of scarce and valuable metals that are locked in complex secondary materials and their return to elemental form for reuse at end of product life. Together in this episode, we will be looking at the materials issues in electrical and electronic equipment, both in terms of manufacture and end of life. Chris and Suzanne, hello. Hello. Hi. Uh, so Suzanne, do you want to say a little bit more about what Tech UK is and, and, and why really Tech UK is interested in these sorts of issues? Yes, yeah, so um, our membership um, spans the entire digital economy. Uh, it means we have manufacturers in membership. Uh, predominantly working on products such as TVs, games, consoles, computers, servers, networking equipment, smartphones. So the kind of ICT um, devices that, that power a digital economy. So, of course, um, this is very central to, to our thinking in this space. Um, and, and Chris, so what's your involvement and your interest in these sorts of things? How did you get to be where you are in this place? There was a gap in the market I could see for an engineering company that could provide bespoke pyrometallurgical projects to companies, both big and small, but for the small to mid-budget range. Uh, by that, I mean that there are several engineering companies and EPCM companies, uh, EPCM being Engineering Procurement Construction Management, that provide projects to this area. But the focus, uh, without doubt, is the primary metals industry. So they're looking at the, the mining companies and the offshoot smelting and, and, and refinery plants at uh, the service these mines. Uh, they tend to have a minimum project entry of about 10 million euros, for example. So any less than that, the project cannot be justified within those companies. So they don't tend to engage. So we specialise in projects of, a, say, 30,000 to 3, mil, 3 million and is very much, but not exclusively focused to the secondary metals projects. So as mentioned, the small budgets are representative of the project and specifically what companies are willing to spend on secondary metals projects, not the size of the client. So we have projects globally and with the biggest chemicals and resource companies, but not every project that they do, and specifically those in secondaries, have, have huge budgets. So um, we have developed processes and equipment which are of particular value to companies wishing to process secondaries. But with the onset of Brexit, my, my concern has, has shifted uh, ever so slightly again. So my concern now is really with our ability to retain valuable and critical metals in the economy 
rather than allowing them to find their way into waste streams or be only partially processed in the UK, uh, but refined back to something of value overseas, sometimes on the other side of the world. So Brexit may mean that there is no economic justification to ship secondary materials overseas, and with no facilities in the UK to recover and refine them, we may either stockpile or, worst case scenario, they end up being disposed of. Some materials, I would argue, aren't even safe to ship, you know, such as lithium, and, you know, regulation uh, may dictate that, you know, because it's, it's dangerous to ship it over water. So needless to say, uh, to close the loop on that, with the, with the policy to remove fossil fuel vehicles and, and uh, the entry of electrical vehicles is just one example, there's going to be more and more pressure to recycle these valuable materials and metals are going to be locked up in more complex secondaries uh, and the demand for these materials is, is just going to be considerable. So the UK needs to invest in facilities where we can not only be self-sufficient in the retainment of valuable and critical metals, but also create a hub, a centre of excellence, where we can really get ahead of the game and create an IPR and, and processes to ensure that we can get right on top of the issues of circular economy for these metals uh, and while minimising the impact on climate change. Thank you very much, Chris. For our listeners who might not be completely au fait with all of uh, the terminology we're using, do you want to just give a quick explanation, boy, what you mean by pyrometallurgy? So pyrometallurgy is, um, so so extractive metallurgy is essentially um, extracting the, the the target metals, the metals that you're, that you're wanting to, to get your hands on uh, and getting rid of the uh, deleterious materials that, that you don't want. So in primary uh, metals, that means mining from the ground and it goes through process to get rid of the, the gangrenous materials, i.e. the rocks and uh, what, what have you that, that, that are of no value and um, going through various stages to, to get them to what we call a four nines metal, you know, a 99.99% purity metal that is um, saleable on the, uh, you know, at the London Metals Exchange. Now, there's various ways you can do it. You can do it using heat and, and fire, uh, I suppose. So py- pyrometallurgy is, is, is that way of using, using heat to, to turn the uh, metal into a, a molten form with all its other materials that you want to remove. Uh, there are other ways to do it, such as hydrometallurgy, or there's even, um, you can do it with bacteria, such as uh, biohydrometallurgy, for example. There are various ways, um, but pyrometallurgy is definitely my area of, of expertise. Thank you, that's really helpful. So, Suzanne, um, you'll have heard Chris talking there about some of the concerns he's got about the availability of these materials. Is that something that Tech UK and its members is, is thinking about and worrying about as well? Um, so, of course, some of these substances are found, you know, some of the materials in electronics are um, equally of importance. I mean, I, I take batteries as an example because um, it's obviously very live, but um, we've all, we're all aware of the issues around rare earth materials. China has been very active in securing access to mines that produce rare earth um, and currently holds the majority of um, supply of these materials, which are absolutely essential for the manufacturing of a whole range of electrical and electronic equipment. So it's no surprise that the majority of manufacturing at the moment is based in the Far East for electronics and electricals. So from a membership point of view, I think members of Tech UK have long considered how they are going to access these materials in a robust way. We've seen resource strategies being developed in Korea, South Korea, China, Japan and the States that really consider how they can ensure access to these materials. 
the response in the UK thus far has been the Resource Security Action Plan, which was a kind of toe in the water, really, and is due for refreshment shortly. It was the commitment in the most recent government's uh, resource and waste strategy, which was published uh, um, just over a year ago. So I think there is issues around supply and particularly for those um, whose manufacturing is outside of the Far East. One of the uh, interesting factoid that I've heard in this space, which I think helps illustrate some of the issues we're thinking about, is that there is more a higher proportion of gold in a ton of used mobile phones nowadays than in a ton of commercial gold ore and i suppose that's an indication of some of the value that we can be losing when we're not collecting these things back where are these materials coming from you said a bit about china Suzanne, cornering the market if you like on um, rare earth metals but how about the, the the breadth of these things chris do you where do these things come from normally if you like at the moment yeah, I mean, well, look, the mind all over the world, but um, you know, I agree with everything uh, that Susan's uh, just said about China cornering the market. They they really have done, and uh, it's not like you can take one or two of the elements out. The way that, that that these goods are manufactured at the moment, they are completely, you know, reliant on so many different metals and, and critical metals. So, yeah, just as an example, um, you know, as, a, as an analysis of, of, a, of a hard drive, for example, you know, you're looking at something like 48 metals are quantified, you know, in, in a computer hard drive, you know, um, over these type of electronics. All of these electronics contain two specific things, a printed circuit board and a battery. And lithium-ion batteries, obviously, was the focus uh, that, that was just discussed there. And it's it's absolutely right. You know, there are all sorts of materials in there that we have to get get to. Where they come from now um, is uh, a source. I suppose it's just as just as Suzanne said. You know, the the, the is cornered in China, but it is all over the world. But China has a huge amount of investment um, in in all of the mines, really. That, that exist to producing these critical uh, metals. So, for example, around about you know the turn of uh, the century, China pushed the price of rare earth metals down to the point where it put the rest of the rare earth metals, you know, sources and mines out of business. They just couldn't follow them down the price curve. So they cornered the market and were, um, were supplying ninety five percent of the world's rare earth metals. But the, out of that that ninety five percent, only represented. 30% of what they were producing, they were keeping the rest inside of China. Outside of China, Japan and US are the, are the main consumers, as was the second and third. But, you know, all, all of these actions that governments have been taking around the world to, to understand the, the security implications, the national security implications, because it's not just about uh, high technology and the advancements of technology, it's about the defence sector, it's about green energy. All, you know, all, all of these materials are required for them, and it's, and, and it's a problem if they come from a particular, if, if, if all of the materials are imported. So, for example, the US reopened Mountain Pass. Mountain Pass was closed because uh, due to economic problems of being pushed down the price curve in the, in the turn of the century by China. Uh, but they reopened in 2018. So now China holds 70% of the market. And Mountain Pass is, 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 is holding a, a really good um, corner of it. But to put that in perspective, 100% of the rare earth elements that are produced from Mountain Pass are exported to China, bizarrely enough. Uh, it's because China holds a massive stake in Mountain Pass. So, you know, it's, I know this is a, a massive source of frustration for the Pentagon. So, you know, the, the, these things, the, there needs to be a solution. There needs to be a solution. Recycling is, is an absolute must. It has to happen. Uh, but it's very, very complex and it's very uneconomical. 
to do with the technology that exists now. It, you know, there, there has to be some level of uh, subsidy and, and, and a huge amount of research and development, development to work out ways to do it efficiently. But as far as, uh, as mining is concerned, you know, we are where we are. It's not like just pick a site anywhere. There has, there has to be in a, a concentration big enough to, to make a, a mining it economically viable. Yeah, I think we'll come back into the, the recycling conversation in a moment because I think there's a lot of interesting things to, to talk about there. Suzanne, one of the things that you hear about is uh, issues to do with the ethics, if you like, around uh, sourcing some of these materials. What, where's Tech UK on this? What's What's the sort of thinking and, and, and action um, in, in the Tech UK world on ethical sourcing and so on? Yeah, it's a huge issue and one that increases to attract more and more attention and, and rightly so. You know, I, I think, um, as Chris mentioned, materials that are found within um, electricals and electronics are from all over the world. And that includes some high risk areas, um, some that have had some prominent uh, thinking and focus has been on three TGs, the tin, tungsten, tantalum and gold sourced from the DRC. But equally, there are issues around gold uh, from Colombia and mica in northeast India, to name but a few. And by high risk, we mean that these are regions where we know there are a high risk of slavery, child labour and other human rights and environmental abuses. But the positive thing is that ethical sourcing is becoming um, an increasing focus, not just for companies sourcing from those regions, but also for governments, regulators, civil society uh, and buyers. In the UK specifically, we've seen the Modern Slavery Act focusing attention on slavery risks, uh, but we can expect more systematic changes to come in the future. We have a responsible minerals uh, regulation that has been agreed uh, prior to us leaving the EU, which means we will carry it into UK law, which um, focuses on due diligence for the three TGs. And uh, rather than just having a a focus on DRC, uh, companies have to carry out due diligence if they're sourcing from any high-risk area. So that broadens the regions in which companies must focus and consider. And last month, we heard the EU's Justice Commissioner confirm that he will be introducing mandatory requirements for businesses to carry out human rights and environmental due diligence in the um, Commission's work plan for 2021. And this is going to be a a game changer, I, I suspect. But that's not to say that the sector is not already acting. And I think even the Commission and others, OECD, for example, who are very active in this space, acknowledge we need a smart mix of regulation and initiatives that deliver impact on the ground. And it's an area the tech sector has been working on for for many years, um, primarily through an organization based out the States called the Responsible Business Alliance that basically um, helps to streamline audits of factories and smelters across the world to share intelligence um, around potential infractions or insights into potentially irresponsible behavior and to essentially uh, try and adopt a common approach to the standards that the sector expects its suppliers to adopt. Another really significant um, program is the Conflict-Free Smelters Program and uh, the LBMA, the London Bullion Market Association, have a well-established program for gold. And we're seeing new groups springing up looking at specific issues, for example, on batteries and lithium sourcing. Another kind of significant group is the European Partnership for Responsible Minerals. 
that's a kind of newer one. And it's interesting because it's a collaboration between governments. So we have the German, the UK um, and the Dutch governments, for example, some of the founding members of that partnership along with civil society from across the world who are concerned and interested about this area and the companies, the OEMs as well. And it's not just tech, although tech were the first member companies, but we're seeing that spread out into other areas too, such as automotive, which is positive. And really the kind of aim of that partnership is to complement the EU's regulation by trying to deliver projects on the ground that will make a notable difference. So, for example, can we use blockchain um, by the mine to really ascertain and prove that people are being paid for the work that they're carrying out? Um, How can we support governments in those regions to develop the capacity to respond to some of the, the issues that are on the ground? Because I think what we've determined and seen in recent years, particularly in response to the US's own legislative response to this, the Dodd Frank Act, was in the aftermath of Dodd-Frank, we saw lots of companies just shifting their sources away from areas which were high risk. And what we saw was actually there was even more detrimental impact to the vulnerable societies that do depend on mining for their livelihoods. And civil society, you know, have really kind of impressed upon us that the answer isn't to move away from these regions, but to work with partners on the ground to try and develop um, secure and responsible supply chains for these materials. It's clearly not an easy job and it's not one that an individual company can solve by themselves. Um, And I think we've seen through the UK Modern Slavery Act Every single company will have risks in their supply chain. I think, you know, we've got to a point of maturity in being able to acknowledge that, but being able to put in place mechanisms to try and try and address that. So it's still ongoing. And of course, this is still not an issue that we're going to solve overnight. But there are some great initiatives um, underway and there's more to come in this space in the months and years to come, for sure. That's really helpful to have that understanding. Moving on to some of the practical concerns that we see. I mean, obviously, there's the the, the, the issue of finding deposits that are commercially uh, viable in the first place if you're looking for primary materials and some of the, the richest deposits having been worked out. But there's also, isn't there, a bit of an issue about the logistics chain? And I saw one interesting graphic that suggests, for example, with lithium for batteries, that it's in the Atacama Desert um, in South America, then it's shipped to uh, processed a bit and then shipped to ch- to China and turned into either lithium carbonate or, or, or actual batteries, which are then shipped back to Europe to be turned into uh, electric vehicles, which then are shipped off to somewhere else to be sold and driven. And, and all of the embedded carbon and the environmental impacts and cost that's involved with that, I think is probably also an issue, isn't it? Yes, I think you're, you're quite right. I mean, there are hugely com- complex supply chains at play um, some of our members have uh, supply chains that run six tiers deep uh, and may may encompass you know, thousands, if not ten thousand, companies, which makes this you know a really challenging area to validate um, standards throughout the entire the entire chain. Which is why working in partnerships so important. But in terms of the environmental impact, I think there has been some quite conducive research recently 
that I've seen that suggests that electrification of vehicles still, regardless of the environmental load associated with batteries and complex supply chains, are still a beneficial kind of route to follow, despite the the kind of embedded environmental and carbon impacts. And it's certainly the the strategy that the Committee on Climate Change is advocating uh, and one in which the UK government seems to be adopting. It recently committed kind of prior to COVID 500 million to start supporting electric vehicle charging and infrastructure in the UK, which just shows the kind of weight in which it's banking on electric vehicles. I think we're also interested as hydrogen in hydrogen as an alternative means particular for for larger vehicles we think there's still potential in there but it's it's definitely uh, an area which still needs to have you know we need to keep an eye on this we cannot assume that just because it is a solution to net zero that we can't not resolve the issues associated with its sourcing and equally we need to ramp up our efforts around rec- material recovery there is some exciting work in this space, the work of the Faraday Institute, the plans for a gigawatt uh, factory and for uh, a remanufacturing capability within the UK. So I, I think the thinking is there on batteries, perhaps less so for recovering materials that you would find in printed circuit boards. So Chris, you said that your company is involved in designing and um, supplying kit to to get some of that material out. Do you want to just explain to us what some of the challenges are, what the issues are that you have to face and address in that kind of work? Taking a printed circuit board as a as an example, it's you can you can roughly if you put a pie, a pie chart together of what what was contained in a in a typical printed circuit board, um, a third of it would be plastics or what we'd call organics. Uh, a third would be epoxy resin such as fiberglass, and a third would be metals which would be largely uh, copper with iron, aluminium, and some uh, precious metals and some critical metals. There's a lot of different materials. Uh, and you can't just put a printed circuit board through a process without having some kind of uh, way to mechanically break it down because they, they, they come in in bulky equipment. There are uh, directives in place to make sure that companies that are involved in recycling of, of uh, electronic goods um, they attempt to repair the goods, put them back into use before they are mechanically broken down. So only when they're proven to be to, to be broken, essentially, can, can they be mechanically broken down, which is a labour-intensive thing to do. You can do it mechanically um, and go through several processes. You have to remove certain parts of the of the circuit board, such as capacitors and and, and batteries because um, they uh, contain uh, harmful substances that, that we don't, you know, that, that really need to be removed and treated separately. If, you know, if it contains something like cadmium, for example. And uh, from that point, uh, then you've got the economics of, of how you are, and the chemistry of how you break down this complex material, although it's in shredded form, say, you know, a, a, a centimetre across, a centimetre in diameter, for example. Yeah, in bulk form, how do how do you treat this 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 material in an economically viable way and one that is uh, also acceptable environmentally, as in it has no no specific impact to, to the environment. The, you know the, the process routes. There there are many routes that can be taken with, uh, and there are advantages and disadvantages uh, of each route. But the, the biggest problems are, are the capital costs of the equipment to do this. 
um, the amount of kind of red tape that you've got to go through to, to be able to set up a, a, a plant that's able to, to, um, to process these materials and where the end point is. You know, what is it that you're actually trying to, to refine? Any specific metals such as the copper or the precious metals or the, or the, uh, the critical metals. There are so many materials that you, you could want to actually refine, but it's hard to do all of them. So you tend to do one of them or a mixture of them. And it's, so um, it, there, are, there, are many, there are many challenges. Uh, as far as the environment is concerned, you know, the organics create a problem and you have to have specific equipment designed and put in place to deal with the organics so you're not pushing anything such as carbon monoxide out into the uh, atmosphere. And there are also uh, electronics tend to be coated in fire retardants. And these, these tend to be halogenated uh, fire retardants, bromine-based, for example. And when uh, these are combusted, they, they create uh, you know, seriously toxic gases. You know, they're, they're called dioxins and furans, and they have to be treated uh, to make sure that they don't enter the atmosphere. So um, you've got, uh, you know, poisonous chemicals, essentially, that are byproducts that need to be dealt with. Um, you've got uh, organics that, that create carbon monoxide that's got to be dealt with. Um, you've got uh, a lot of uh, byproducts, um, uh, slags, for example, that need to be handled and uh, disposed of or reused if possible. And, and then you're left with um, a, a mass of metal, shall we say, that is just a mixture of many, many metals. So then you've got to go through processes for, all, for, for that mass of metals to break them down into individual metals. So it, it, it's a long and complex uh, procedure. And when you put the capital expense of putting the plant together to do that, along with the operational costs of, of running the plant to do that, then there is a, an economics problem at the end of it, as in what you actually get at the end of it, was it worth it? Does it equate the amount of money that it costs to do all do it all in the first? So yeah, there there, there are problems and 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 challenges, uh, but it can, it it can be economically viable. But like all things, it can it's it's really only economically viable if you do it in bulk. So the more that you process, the better the scales of economy. But the, the higher the costs up front. Yeah, no, I can see that. And of course, the competing uh, outlet, if you like, for some of this material is, is what you see sometimes in these horrible pictures of um, large dumps of waste electrical equipment in Africa or whatever else. And you've got hundreds of people burning off the, the plastics in open burning and poisoning themselves and, and the atmosphere and so on and so forth. And that's very cheap in cash terms, but very, very expensive in environmental and human impacts terms. Yeah, yes, correct. So uh, unfortunately, there is no compromise. You have to you, you have to do it uh, in an environmentally sound way, and the material is, is worthless unless you get it to a purity. So it, you you have to put together a complex flow essentially of of uh, equipment and, and chemistry to 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 make it a viable operation. But it has been proven. It has been done many times around the world. They have some very good uh, processes in Europe to do this and in Japan some very good processes in Japan. And so it, it's a case of, is there an appetite to do this in the UK, essentially? Uh, but it's got to be done at some some scale to make it economically viable. Otherwise, it's going to require some kind of um, support until it does get to a, an economically viable scale. So, Suzanne, is there an appetite to do it in the UK, do you think? I think it's certainly something which is under discussion. So maybe I could just kind of touch on that point around the kind of images that we we see in Africa um, and the systems we have pace in Europe. So kind of currently 
Um, as I think has been alluded to, we have in the UK a system of producer responsibility for electricals and electronic equipment. You may have also have heard about a similar regime that's in place for packaging. And in fact, there is um, another for um, end of uh, life vehicles and for batteries. Um, and what that means is that the original manufacturer of that product is responsible for the cost of recycling that product at the end of life. For B2B equipment, the responsibility is on the original manufacturer to have a take back process in place for them to remain responsible for either remanufacturing it, refurbishing it or recycling it if it thinks it's at the end of its life. Uh, for B2C equipment, so stuff that's sold to consumers, that's all collected by local authorities. And historically, that has been through um, household waste recycling centres or your local dump. You can take your electronics or electricals to those sites. They will be consolidated and then taken to an AATF, which is essentially a site which will shred the materials and start separating them out for further processing. And you may see there at that point printed circuit boards also being taken out and sent to refineries. And typically that might be in Scandinavia, Germany or in uh, Belgium. Batteries themselves are also stripped out and taken to specialist sites for recovery too. And again, there are one or two sites around Europe which taking batteries from across the entire continent, very much playing to what uh, Chris was mentioning, really getting that economy of scale to make that, that site economically uh, viable. So um, in the UK, we do have a system in place to deal responsibly with our electronics and electricals. But of course, there are still healthy secondary markets for products that still work. And currently, international regulations do permit the sale of still working equipment to non-OECD countries. And the challenge here is that the demand for these products are in regions like Africa, which don't have the regulatory structures or the tr sufficient treatment capacity to deal with them at the end of life. And that's why we see those horrendous pictures in, in places like Ghana, um, Abaloshi. That obviously you know, needs to change and, and companies are working through with the UN, for example, to support countries in putting place these regulations. You know, it's probably not a surprise to hear this is not top of their agenda. So it's quite a push to try and get the governments to develop new e-waste EPR extended producer responsibility laws in, um, in those countries. And actually, last year, we saw Nigeria adopt new laws in a project with several large producers. Now, going back to the UK, I think, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the flaws that we see in the current system is that there really isn't much certainty within, within it. Uh, collection targets are set year on year, and they're you know, I think it's fair to say there is a bit of a race to the bottom in, in terms of cost with producers of electronics and electricals joining something called producer compliance schemes who then work to collect the material and get it treated on behalf of their producer members. And they themselves are in competition with other schemes, um, which drives down the costs, which I think then starts make a, presenting issues um, in investment for long-term recovery. But there is certainly um, an interest amongst producers and a growing interest in producers. It makes absolute sense from their perspective to get as much value as, as we can out of those products. 
but we've still a long way to go. This year, the UK government is refreshing the UK WE system. So that's the waste electrical and electronic equipment regime that I've just been speaking about. And that's very much one of the objectives we'll be trying to integrate into the reformed regime to provide a bit more certainty and allow schemes and producers to start making investments and bringing up um, our treatment uh, capabilities and capacity. I think there's also probably a job for for us to do more innovation in this space. I think one of the one interesting piece of research which is underway at the moment, which is being funded through a uh, fund which has been created uh, through the uh, EPR regime um, in the UK is really kind of understanding better the economic and technical barriers that are preventing the scaling of technologies um, for abstraction. Some of the techniques that uh, Chris touched on, such as bioleaching, remain you know firmly lab-based, and um, we think that this is an area that could well benefit from uh, a more interventionist approach to um, try and overcome some of the economic and technical barriers to scale. So this will be something we'll be looking for in the revised Resource Security Action Plan. As I mentioned, we want to see more certainty being loaded into the the UK's regime for dealing with these products. And um, I think we just need to recognise that we we need to support more more innovation in this space if we're going to really recover all the materials that our society think are important, particularly in the context of the low-carbon transition. Yeah, I think that's that's a, a really interesting set of points there. Chris, one of the things that um, you've been talking about in, in, in your description of, of how you approach the, the recycling of this material at the end of life, I guess you just are in the position you just don't know what you've got in front of you. You've got a pile of used electronic, but it could be almost anything. What was your thinking about where the responsibility might lie to make that a simpler job? We've talked a little bit about producer responsibility talked a little bit about blockchain you know what could designers do when they're making the kit or manufacturers do when they're making the kit to make your end of the process easier that's quite a a fairly difficult question for me to answer because at the moment i don't know the all of the manufacturing processes that they go through i'm really just dealing with companies that that are collecting this material in order to to process it and they're doing it for specifically economic reasons you know they might advertise themselves as environmental companies that they usually have environment as as part of their advertisement but essentially what they're trying to do is is is, is access the precious metals more than anything else and, and and sell them for a profit as far as what they're facing uh, you know the the, the problems that they posed to me are uh, as you quite rightly say that the variation in, in, in what exactly they are uh, faced with so um, so for example a, a printed circuit board that was from uh, a military sync, uh, printed circuit board or a, a telecoms specifically uh, an older generation one where the semiconductor tele- technology wasn't so good would be would be what we call a very very high quality circuit board it would be have a very thick coating of precious metals specifically gold um, which makes it very valuable and and and, and um, they're the type of circuit boards they want but as technology improves the the amount of valuable metals that are accessible just decreases and decreases and decreases to the point where it's it, it's worthless to them to try and access it. It costs too much money. There's no economics in trying to access it. 
And when it comes to domestic goods, you're not going to get much more than a bit of lead or uh, tin, you know, for, for, from it. So it's it's a difficult economic problem because there's this is where it crosses over from 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 economics to, to social responsibility. Is a is the fact that we we, we have to keep these materials in the economic uh, cycle, just just within economy. If it comes in, then it's, if it's mined, it has to stay in circulation. It's as simple as that. It can't be go. It can never go back to the ground. That's that's the way that I look at it. There has to be some way to do that, but there has to be some economically viable way to do it. Now, when it comes to the um, the, the myriad of, of uh, materials that are used in all sorts of different technologies, that to me that's a, a straightforward. Is there any way where it, it can these type of things like disk drives or touch screens or any type of uh, battery that that may be used, regardless of the uh, of the technology, is there any way we could simplify how these how the materials are used within these? components and, and the amount of different materials and it's going to become uh, uh, look Suzanne said it right at the start of this we are a million miles away from having the resources to be able to build these components um, with what the concurrent global supply of these that exists of these materials they just they just don't exist they're not there so how are we going to do it so we have to we have uh, absolutely there are two things that have to be thought about how we actually make these components with materials that are available to us, how do we make them accessible at end of life, what is the technology at end of life to deal with lots of different materials. So you can't have a, a completely different process stream to deal with every single material. Is there a single process stream that can deal with many different materials? So all of these things need putting together, mapping down, and, and but it, it needs funding somehow. You know, there needs, there needs to be some kind of government support really to, to, to get that uh, into place. So uh, one interesting thing you said there was um, effectively the older PCBs and uh, equipment are probably more valuable. So should we be going out there and mining old landfill sites for this stuff? Well, I mean, it's an interesting one. Let's take gold for an example. If you could look at the world's biggest gold mine, uh, which is also a, a copper mine and, and significant silver mine, in, uh, which is Gresik, and it, but it only has what they're mining, about 0.5 grams of gold per tonne of ore. And then you've got, uh, you know, the mines, um, for example, Fort Knox is mining about one gram of ton uh, of ore. So about one to six grams uh, is normal. One to six grams of gold per ton of ore is, is probably what you'd expect. When it comes to something like mobile phones, well, it's a little bit difficult um, because the phone technology changes constantly. It's never moving target. And just as a side note, this is this is one of the big problems. I'm sure this is something that Suzanne comes across as well. Is is that getting reliable data is very very difficult. So the data tends to be a few years old. The technology technology has moved on. It's hard to understand if uh, what what um, data is re- reliable or even relevant anymore. So um, that, that's something that uh, can be difficult to, to deal with when, when I'm analysing all these uh, different situations. Absolutely. <laughs> I would totally agree. Data is a systemic issue within, within this area. We just don't have reliable data um, at all. No, not at all. So if you look at a mobile phone then, so a mobile phone generally now, they're getting bigger again, a mobile phone, so they're starting to get heavier again. So, but, but let's say, for example, an average mobile phone weighs about 170 grams. So you'll get about 5,882 phones uh, per metric ton. If I understand currently, as an estimate, how much gold you would get in a mobile phone, that would equate to 
147 grams of gold per ton of phones, that, for, that being 5,882 phones. And that's compared to one to six grams of ton per ton of ore, as it were, gold ore. Back to the question, is it should we be mining phones as opposed to, as opposed to, to, to mining ore? Well, it, it depends how many phones there are per ton of landfill and where it is. Do we know they're there? If we do know they're there and they're there in significant quantities, absolutely. But if we know it's there, that's the, that, that's the thing. Is there any records of it? Do we know it's there? Where is it? Otherwise, we could spend a lot of time digging up landfills and just and, and find nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, Suzanne, this 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 issue about what is it that um, designers and manufacturers can do to make the end of life recycling easier? Do you have any thoughts on on the sorts of things that people ought to be looking at in that space? Yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot going on in this area. So um, forgive me while I bore you with some standards talk. So across Europe, we have been working for the last three years, if not longer, on a suite of standards that will start to assess and qu- allow people to really uh, measure how durable, recyclable and reusable a product is, how easy it is to repair, upgrade and remanufacture. This is uh, sounds very dull, but actually it's in, super important because unless we have methodologies that allow us to measure these characteristics in products, you can't start to regulate for uh, design characteristics in products. They can't be audited uh, and they can't be enforced. So these suite of standards are super important and they form part of the work that the European Commission is doing at the moment around circular economy. It has recently launched um, a revision to its circular economy action plan. Electronics and electricals are a priority under that plan. And we know it's also a priority for the UK government as it looks to revise its waste prevention programme. We know that there will be much more intervention from government on design characteristics of, of products. Some of the members are already working in this space and doing some fantastic work. But, you know, we're far from a kind of situation where all the market is responding to circular economy drivers at the moment. So what eco-design legislation can do is really just level the playing field. And essentially, you cannot sell that product in the UK or Europe unless those standards are met. In the past, we've always focused on the energy consumption of these products. But yeah, so this is a kind of new uh, and growing field. So that's one area. The kind of other area which I think is kind of notable is connected again with the, with the regime changes I, I spoke about earlier around the um, system that governs how we dispose of our electrical and electronic equipment. What is going to happen in future is that the cost that manufacturers pay um, will vary according to how good or bad their product is. So what exactly good will mean is still being debated and discussed at the moment, but it's very likely to be um, around criteria on how recyclable it is, how repairable it is, potentially whether, whether that manufacturer has phased out more hazardous substances than is required by law, and probably whether that product contains recycled materials in it. That's kind of where it looks like it's going. So that could be really, really powerful, particularly if we see lots of different countries start adopting the same criteria 
all of a sudden you've got a really huge price signal to manufacturers um, that they will respond to. Um, I think the major challenge in making all of that work is to make it work for online sellers as well. So I think one 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 issue that we've seen is there's you know new entrants to market um, being sold directly through online retailers from China, and they may not always be compliant with the rules and regulations that we have in the UK um, and indeed Europe. There's a lot of free riding on there. And by that, I mean, they are not paying for the cost of recycling their product at the end of life. They're not paying their fair share of the system. Uh, and we know that um, some of them don't even meet basic safety requirements too. So in order to really make this work, we also need to think through how we regulate online sellers uh, in the same way as we regulate through kind of traditional bricks and mortar retailers, the producers selling through there. Um, so there are some challenges, but there are some big drivers on the way. One of the issues that I've heard also people talk about in terms of how in the UK we can grow a, a better approach to capturing some of these materials is just the, the, the human capital, if you like, that's in the space. And in fact, Chris, I think somebody said to me the other day, and I don't know whether you think this is true or not, but that you're one of the three remaining professional pyrometallurgists in the UK. A, is that true? But B, is there a skill shortage in this kind of space? Is this something we're, we're running out of knowledge of? I think I know who, who may have uh, mentioned that to you. <laughs> and I think I, think he, uh, I think I also know who, who the third member is. The point is that extractive metallurgy, uh, pyrometallurgy, is not a huge industry. As in, for example, the company that I run, we don't, we don't have a huge amount of competition, hardly any. It doesn't mean to say they're out of the pyrometallurgists. They're just working in uh, areas of steel where there are plenty of pyrometallurgists. Aluminium, there are plenty of them. And in the UK, obviously. Copper, absolutely, you know, there's plenty of them. But when it starts coming down to, to, to precious metals uh, and we start looking at uh, other uh, more exact, exotic metals and or, or, or scarce materials, then, uh, yeah, there are, there are very few and far between. It's, it's not specifically career targeted. It's, I suppose it's a little haphazard. <laughs> and I think a lot of people do. They end up, they end up doing something that they didn't quite envisage, but, uh, but, but here we are. But yes, I, th- I think one of the, the, the issues that we've got and a barrier really to how we advance um, our ability to recycle uh, these materials, not in the sense of collecting, sorting, shredding, sizing, but going that extra step, which is Suzanne, uh, Susan said, where they go to Scandinavia, to Germany, to Belgium, for that multi-metal refining approach that those facilities have and do so well, that, that's where we're lacking. There are facilities in this country that, that, that do that, but only for very, very specific purposes, and usually for internal purposes as well, as in recycling materials for their own products, not for the general uh, market. Yeah, I think there, there is a skill shortage, a resource shortage, and an educational gap. And I think that's something that, that, that really needs addressing. There needs to be, I think what I'm trying to say is that when most people have, have, have got their qualifications, they've been through their education system, uh, uh, and they're happy with where they are with their, with their accreditations, and they want to get on with the career, they don't have time to stop for another year and learn something else. They need to, they need to learn the skills in a week 
for example, or two weeks, or perhaps a series of, of, of short courses where they've got time to, to either spend their own time, take holidays from work and spend their own time, or, or they're, they're, they're supported by the, the, the companies to do so. But it's not, it's not always, you know, companies aren't always able to do that. It, but where would they go for such specialist knowledge about on pyrometallurgy or hydrometallurgy or how to process specific materials? or um, how to design and build a furnace, or how to design and build a, uh, anything to do with these, uh, you know, a, an electro winning tank or anything like that. You know, there's, there, is, there is really is a, a, a big area um, that is missing um, that, that needs to be covered. If we are going to skill up as a nation and become self-sufficient as a nation, moving things, you know, shredding things and then shipping them, you know, there's also a carbon footprint uh, uh, associated with that. But regardless of the fact whether there's, uh, an economic problem with with the fact that we, we may not be part of the EU anymore. So you know all of these things we, we need to we need to address them absolutely. Suzanne, is, is a skills issue something that uh, your members are, are recognising and and trying to address, or is it not something that's really that relevant to them yet? So I think from our sector, um, it, it's it's probably a, a little bit. Um, more focus around digital skills. That's very much the the emphasis of activity on skills uh, for us because everything is becoming digitalized. We need the skills to be able to respond to that. And we have a real problem as a sector in getting women in tech. Um, So that's another uh, focus for us. We're probably a bit more removed, I think, from the skills requirements of the supply chain or value chain associated with dealing with with um, with waste electricals and electronics. Okay, thank you. So my final question to each of you uh, is a bit of a curveball. Can you give me a good example or a really bad example of something, a, a piece of tech or a piece of um, electrical equipment that is really good at the circularity thing or really bad at the circularity thing from your own experiences? So I think one example um, here in the UK of a very nice circular piece of electronics is Sky's TiVo boxes, which um, they provide to customers under a service agreement, which means that they retain ownership of those boxes and they are all remanufactured and Sky operates its own recycling site um, as well to deal with those boxes that cannot be restored and put back out to market. And before it does recycle it, it will harvest components that can be used again. You know, for me, that that seems like it's ticking all the boxes in respect to a circular business model for electronics. I guess it's it, one of the things that people talk about is this ideal of having the original equipment manufacturer staying the owner of the kit all the way through because that builds all the correct incentives in place to build it in the right way in the first place so that you can repair it remanufacture it disassemble it and and to keep it coming back to you i, I guess that's the the essence there chris have you got a, an example you want to throw yeah i mean it's not so much of a of a product but it's it's more of a recycling technology, and this is this is an example that has uh, recently been in the media, and it's it's something I want to bring up because it's a perfect example of what we need to do. Um, and that's that's a, a if I'm allowed to say this, a company uh, called Hypermag that uh, extracts and recycles uh, neodymium magnets uh, from used hard disk drives. 
So uh, neodymium is a, is a rare earth metal. It's considered essential as a, as a critical metal, metal in most of the technologies, uh, such as phones, TV screens. It's used in magnets that turn uh, motors that drive electrical vehicles. And uh, this company has discovered a way to to recycle this rare earth element. And, you know, perhaps in 10 years' time, they may be able to provide the UK with about a quarter of, of the UK's demand for uh, dimium. And it, currently, it's, it's all imported from China. And this is a perfect example of, of, of what I believe we need to do as far as if these critical metals, rare earths, precious metals, that come into the country in products... We have to keep them in the country at the end of the life because we have we are completely completely reliant on imports. But really, it's a national security problem as well. So it's it's, it's something that I full fully support. Um, I wish the company really well. I hope I hope they do really well, and and they start to uh, investigate um, the, re- the extraction and recycling of of, of other uh, critical metals as well. It's another interesting illustration, I think, Chris, because you can really see that. Um if you can, computer hard disks are relatively easy to extract from computers. And in fact, you could probably smash a computer up and still get the hard disk out in a way that you could then put through that process. But of course, another place you find lots of these um, neodymium containing magnets are in modern cars. And of course, the way that a modern car is recycled is more or less crush and shred. And then the rare earth metals are so diluted in the final process that I doubt their technology would be able to get it out. And so it really demonstrates that that importance of, of getting the right bit of the kit out to be able to make those technologies work. So I think it's a really interesting one. Well, thank you both very much indeed. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot. I hope that you found it interesting as well. Is there anything you want to close with? You don't have to, but uh, if there is, please do. Yes, um, if I can just make a plug for a new campaign that has recently been launched to encourage people to recycle their electricals. It's called Recycle Your Electricals, and you can Google it and look at our website. Because I think the point is here is that, you know, at the moment, while all the large electricals and electronics are being recycled at local dumps, because it's inconvenient to do anything else with those products, um, if it can fit into a bin, very likely people are putting it in bins. And if there's data on those devices, such as mobile phones or laptops, it's probably being hoarded away somewhere in someone's home, probably not in landfills, as, as you touched upon earlier. And so we have the challenge of getting them out of the bin, out of being hoarded and into proper recycling. So please do have a look at our website and try and help us make recycling of these products normal and done without thinking. So, yeah, please get in touch if you're interested in finding out more or visit the recycling website to see how you can get involved. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.